Lesson 9 for February 21-27, to Words of Truth. Sabbath afternoon, February 21. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you provide truth for us, and in this day and age it is often thought as being relative. But the truth is, that you are the God who created the universe, you are the God who provides salvation, and you are the God who walks with us day by day. And as we open your word this week, we just pray that the Holy Spirit will guide us into even more truth. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Proverbs chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge, that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send to you? Let's read that again, Proverbs 22, verses 20 and 21. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge, that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send to you? Some of this week's proverbs show parallels with Egyptian texts. Under inspiration, Solomon might have shaped these texts according to a specifically Hebrew perspective. Here, the words of the Egyptians meet the spirit of Israel's God, and thus they become divine revelation. This observation is important for it reminds us of the universal character of truth. What is true for the Israelite should also be true for the Egyptian, otherwise it would not be the truth. It is important to remember that God's truths apply universally to everyone. The domain of these admonitions is common to both communities. That is, whoever you are, whether a believer or not, and wherever you live, there are some things that you should not do. Sunday, February 22, The Knowledge of Truth Question, read Proverbs chapter 22, verses 17 and 18. What are we being told about how truth should impact our lives? Beginning in verse 17, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. Let them all be fixed upon your lips. The first duty of the student is to listen and pay attention. Incline your ear and hear. That's verse 17. In other words, concentrate. The crucial point is that the seeker of truth must be earnest, must truly want to learn what is right, and then do it. But it is not enough for the student to listen or even to understand intellectually what is being taught. Some people who have a lot of biblical facts in their heads have no real knowledge or experience with the truth itself. As you read in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Question. Read Proverbs chapter 22, verses 19 to 21. What should an experience in truth do for us? Verse 19, 
so that your trust may be in the Lord I have instructed you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge, that I might make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send to you? The first goal of the teaching of wisdom is not wisdom per se. Proverbs does not aim at making more intelligent and more skillful disciples. The teacher's objective is to strengthen the disciples' trust in the Lord. Point 2. Conviction. Verse 21. That I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send you. Students should know why these words of truth are certain. They should know why they believe what they do. Faith, by definition, is belief in what we don't fully understand. Nevertheless, we still should have good reasons for that faith. And point three is also in verse 21. The last step of education is to share with others words of truth we have received. This is central to our whole calling as a people. So, to finish today, think about all the powerfully logical reasons we have for our Seventh-day Adventist faith. What are these reasons, and why should we never hesitate in keeping them ever before us and sharing them with others? Bring your answer to class on Sabbath. Monday, February 23, Robbing the Poor Question. Read Proverbs chapter 22, verses 22 and 23, and chapter 23, verse 10. What are we warned about here? Proverbs twenty-two, twenty-two. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause, and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. And chapter 23, verse 10. Do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fatherless. Although it's always wrong to steal, this prohibition concerns stealing from the poor and the oppressed, who are the most vulnerable. They are truly helpless, and therefore they qualify for God's special concern, as we read in Exodus 22, verses 21 to 27. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not charge him interest." If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. The case of David, who killed Uriah in order to steal his wife, and Nathan's parable of the ewe lamb, as we can read in Second Samuel 1-4, come to mind 
robbing from the poor is not just a criminal act, it is a sin against the Lord. As Second Samuel 12 verse 13 says, well, let's have a look at Second uh, Samuel 12, 1 to 4. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate at his own food and drank with his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveller came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. To take from someone who has less than what you have is worse than stealing. It is also an act of cowardice. Do these thieves think that God doesn't see their actions? Indeed, Proverbs 22.23, as we read, implies that even if the thief gets away with no human punishment, God will repay. The reference to the Redeemer, the goal, in Proverbs 23, verse 11, let's read that verse. For their Redeemer is mighty, he will plead their cause against you. May even allude to the divine scenario of end-time judgment. So, this warning, along with others in the Bible, speaks against those who are interested only in the immediate gains of their actions and not the long-term results. They take possession and enlarge their properties at the expense of others, and they are willing to cheat and kill for that purpose. They may enjoy it now, but they will pay later. This reasoning should not only discourage the thief, it should show that our ethical values are intricately tied to the sovereignty of God. So, to finish today. In England, some atheists had the following slogan placed on city buses. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Though there are many retorts one could give in response, think about this one. If there were no God, then those who steal from the poor and are getting away with it now really have nothing to worry about. Indeed, all those who have done great evil and seem to have gotten away with it will, in fact, have really gotten away with it. How should faith in God and in his promises of judgment help to give us some peace of mind regarding all the injustice we see in the world now? Tuesday, February 24, being jealous of the wicked. Question. What do Proverbs 23.17, 24.1 and 2, and 24.19 and 20 warn us about? Well, first of all, chapter 23, verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners. Be not jealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. Chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. And chapter 24, verses 19 and 20. 
Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked, for there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Why would someone envy the wicked? Most likely it's not because of the actual sins that they might be committing. Rather, it's usually because of the immediate gain, wealth, success, power, that they achieve through their wickedness. That's what people often covet for themselves. Though, of course, not every successful or rich person is wicked. Some are. And they are probably the kind of people we are being warned about in these verses. We see their good life and, from our perspective, especially if we are struggling ourselves, it's easy to envy what they have. This, though, is a very narrow and short-sighted view of things. After all, the temptation of sin is that its reward is immediate. We enjoy the present gratification. A perspective beyond the present can protect us from temptation, that is, we need to look beyond the immediate gains of our sin and think through the long-term consequences. Besides, who hasn't seen just how destructive sin is? We never get away with it. We might be able to hide it from others so that no one, even those closest to us, has a clue about what we are doing, though sooner or later they catch on, don't they? Or we might be able to delude ourselves into thinking that our sins are not that bad. After all, look at how many people do worse things. But sooner or later, one way or another, sin catches up with us. We should hate sin because it is sin. We should hate it because of what it has done to us, to our world and to our Lord. If we want to see the real cost of sin, look at Jesus on the cross. This is what our sin has cost. That realization alone should be enough, though so often it isn't, to make us want to avoid sin and to keep away as much as possible from those who would lead us into it. And so to finish today, have you ever struggled with envy over someone's success? What's the best remedy for this spiritually deadly problem? I think the answer might be in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wednesday, February 25. What we put in our mouths. It is no accident that the first human temptation concerned food, as we read in Genesis 3 3. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. It was being disobedient and eating of the wrong thing that brought sin and death into the world as you read in Genesis 3, 1-7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. 
Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves coverings. And also Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. We shouldn't miss the hard fact, too, that the first mention of wine-drinking in the Bible is presented in a terribly negative and degrading story. Genesis 9.21, this is Noah. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Question. Read Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 to 35. How is the use of alcohol presented in these verses? Beginning at verse 29, and I must tell you, this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible because of the description it gives. Verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying... They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? Who hasn't seen personally just how devastating alcohol can be? Sure, not everyone who drinks becomes a drunk in the gutter. But most likely drunks in the gutter never imagined, the first time they took a drink, that they would eventually wind up in the gutter. A comment from Ellen White in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 3, page 1162. The man who has formed the habit of drinking intoxicating liquor is in a desperate situation. He cannot be reasoned with or persuaded to deny himself any indulgence. His stomach and brain are diseased, his willpower is weakened, and his appetite uncontrollable. The prince of the powers of darkness holds him in bondage, that he has no power to break. Question. Read Proverbs chapter 23, verses 1 to 8. Why should we control our appetites? Beginning at verse 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not overwork to be rich, because of your own understanding, cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, they fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. 
Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. The morsel you have eaten you will vomit up and waste your pleasant words. This admonition is about more than table manners. The biblical text is a warning to those who like to eat and who have great appetites. Verse 2, and put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. The metaphor of putting a knife to one's throat is particularly strong. It not only means curbing the appetite, but also suggests the risk to your health and even your life that could be caused by overeating. The Hebrew word bin, B-I-N, translated consider carefully, expresses the idea of carefully deciding between eating various kinds of food. The same word is used by Solomon when he asks for wisdom to help him discern, that's the word bin, between good and evil in 1 Kings 3 and verse 9. The inspired writer has more in mind than just the issue of appetite control. His counsel may also concern banquets and social drinking, when we are pressured and tempted to desire his delicacies, as it says in verse 3. So to finish today, think about someone you know whose life has been destroyed by alcohol. Why should that example alone be enough to help you to understand why you should never put that poison in your body? Thursday, February 26, Our Responsibilities When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Ezekiel 33, verse 8 What basic spiritual principle is revealed here? How do we take this concept and apply it to our everyday lives? Years ago, in a big western city, a woman was being attacked at night on a street. She cried out for help. Dozens heard her, yet not one person even bothered to call the police. Most people looked out the window and then went back to whatever they were doing. Soon the woman's cries stopped. Later, she was found dead, stabbed numerous times. Were the people who heard her cries but did nothing responsible for her death? Though they hadn't attacked her themselves, did their inaction kill her? Question. Read Proverbs chapter 24 verses 11 and 12 and 23 to 28. What important messages are here for us? Beginning at verse 11 and 12. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? And verses 23 to 28. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, him the people will curse, nations will abhor him. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. Prepare your outside work, 
Make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward build your house. Do not be a witness against your neighbour without cause, for would you deceive with your lips? The law of Moses clearly warns that those who fail to report what they witness will bear guilt, as we read in uh, Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 1. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. We may not be able to act against crime, but if we keep silent about what we see, we then share the guilt with the criminal. By our silence, we become accomplices. On the other hand, If we report the truth in our testimony, giving the right answer, as it says in verse 26 of Proverbs 24, we respond appropriately and behave as responsible people. This act is compared to a kiss on the lips, meaning that the person cares about another person. It's tragic enough, remember, to remain silent and do nothing as a woman is being murdered on your street. But what about many of the other evils in the world? Hunger, war, injustice, racism, economic oppression. What are our responsibilities here as well? Friday, February 27. From the book Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 99, Souls around us must be aroused and saved or they perish. Not a moment have we to lose. We all have an influence that tells for the truth or against it. I desire to carry with me unmistakable evidences that I am one of Christ's disciples. We want something besides Sabbath religion. We need the living principle and to daily feel individual responsibility. This is shunned by many, and the fruit is carelessness, indifference, a lack of watchfulness and spirituality. And from our High Calling, page 20, Talk faith, live faith, cultivate love to God, evidence to the world, all that Jesus is to you. Magnify his holy name, tell of his goodness, talk of his mercy, and tell of his power. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, in class, go over your answer to Sunday's final question. What can we learn from each other's answers? What are ways that we can learn to build up our faith in what we believe? Two, someone wrote, Remember two things, Christ died for you, and you will one day die. In the context of Tuesday's study, which talked about how we will have to answer for sin one way or another, what crucial lessons should we take away from this thought? And three, here again is the quote put on the buses in London, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Besides what the lesson talked about, what other problems do you find with that sentiment? Why would God's existence be something that would make people worry to begin with? What does this sentiment tell us about how well Satan has distorted the character of God in the minds of many people? In class, come up with different ways in which you could respond to that slogan. What are some short, pithy slogans 
that can help people to see the hope that we can have in God. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Helping Mission Succeed When Dan Jacko isn't busy helping people learn to walk again he's assisting his church members with their spiritual walk Pastor Dan, a professional physical therapist is also serving as a lay pastor for the Mountain View Conference in the two-church district of Elkins and Parsons in West Virginia He also teaches biology and chemistry to the academy-level students at Highland Adventist School in Elkins. His wife, Cheryl, is an educator and registered nurse and serves as the principal of the kindergarten through 12th grade school. Their son, Jeremy, teaches Bible, math and history. Believing mission is important, every other year, Pastor Dan leads the students and church members on a mission trip. So far, they've been to Mexico, Panama, Honduras, and in 2014, Costa Rica. While in Costa Rica, they built a church during the day and presented evangelistic meetings and vacation Bible schools in four different churches in the evenings. In spite of his own full schedule, Pastor Dan was impressed with the dedication of the pastor in Costa Rica who shepherds six churches and doesn't have a car. Not only do Pastor Dan and his members build churches abroad, they also build them at home, where they recently completed their own church and school, located on five and a half acres, or 2.2 hectares, completely debt-free. The most recent challenge for Pastor Dan and the 80-member Elkins Church is keeping up with the many Bible study requests coming from their community. Over the course of three mailings in 2013 and 2014, Everyone in the state of West Virginia received an invitation for the Voice of Prophecy's Discover Bible course. The response was overwhelming, with 10,000 people indicating that they would like to have Bible studies. Of that number, more than 200 came from the Elkins and Parsons area. Some are face-to-face Bible studies, explains Pastor Dan, and others prefer to take them by correspondence, which are then graded by our local church members. The local churches are responsible for purchasing the lessons and providing postage for correspondent students. What makes this area even more of a mission field, says Pastor Dan, is that you'll get a lot of people who say, I believe this, but if their family isn't in favour of it, a lot of them just won't make the commitment. Nevertheless, Pastor Dan and the small churches he leads see reaching people for Jesus in their territory as an important mission and are willing to give the time, effort and funds needed to help it succeed. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful.